I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in SELA Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's a challenge to the constitutionality of the leadership structure of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a regulatory agency responsible for consumer protection in the financial sector. Right now, the president can only fire the head of the agency for cause, and the case asks whether that structure violates the constitutional separation of powers. Joining us to discuss this case are two experts on the CFPB and the Constitution, great friends of We the People, a veritable dream team to discuss this very important case. Richard Cordray was the first director of the CFPB from 2012 to 2017. His new book is Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy, and Our Democracy. He previously served as Ohio's Attorney General, Solicitor General, and Treasurer. He's been a law professor and a lawyer and is a former law clerk for U.S. Supreme Court Justices Byron White and Anthony Kennedy. Richard, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure, Jeff. And Ilya Shapiro is director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He co-authored an amicus brief supporting the petitioner in this case on behalf of the Cato Institute, the Center for Individual Rights, and Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Ilya, it is always wonderful to have you back on the show. Good to be back, Jeff. Richard, you served as the first director of the CFPB. You've written this book, Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy, and Our Democracy. Why is this case important, and why should our great We the People listeners care about it? Well, Jeff, as I say in my book uh, and describe at some length, there was a cloud hanging over the new agency from the very beginning when it was created in 2010. Uh, questions about its constitutionality, questions about the structure of the agency. They were first raised by Republican senators who sought to block my confirmation as the first director, a battle that ultimately was prolonged for almost two years. Uh, And eventually they found their way into the courts, and the question has been, Uh, whether having a single director for an agency of this kind that is independent of the president, meaning that you serve for a term and can't be removed except for cause, not based on mere policy disagreements, but for some showing of of real uh, cause, uh, is constitutional, or whether the director should in fact be removable at will by the president for any reason, including that they would just simply like to have a different director doing different things. This came to a head when I was holding over as the director. I was nominated and and, uh, appointed and then confirmed by the Senate by President Barack Obama. After President Donald Trump was elected in November 2016, I held over for almost a year uh, after that and was obviously in many respects out of step with the new administration because I was continuing to uh, drive the agency forward to protect consumers, including with some new regulations, and that was not the tenor of the new administration. And so it really cast into stark relief this issue of whether uh, an agency of this kind can be independent of the president's direction or whether that is consistent with the Constitution. In that case, as you as you're describing here, reached the Supreme Court 
just this week uh, and will be decided by the end of June and ultimately decided one way or the other, but lift that cloud off the agency, which became an impediment to many of our enforcement actions when it was raised uh, by parties in cases and caused courts to go off track instead of investigating and adjudicating the harmful conduct done by financial companies to consumers, they were having to consider constitutional issues that were preliminary to getting to the merits of the cases. Ilya, Richard has described that there was a cloud over the constitutionality of the CFPB ever since it was created. And in your amicus brief in the case, you argue that the limitation of the president's ability to remove the head of the bureau violates the separation of powers, and you argue that the Humphreys executor case, which was decided by Justice Brandeis in the New Deal era, should be narrowed only to apply to non-executive officers, bringing it into line with a case called Myers versus United States, decided by Chief Justice Taft. Explain to our We the People listeners why you think this case is constitutionally important. I'm actually surprised how uh, important uh, everyone is treating it. I've, I've gotten much more media attention uh, in this case than I was expecting um, compared to other structural or appointments clause cases that I've worked on in the last decade or so over other agencies or board or recess appointments. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, invitations to write op-eds and, and talk about this case, not just from uh, you know legal watchdogs, but uh, the, the mainstream media. The, this case... Uh, is one of the top lines this uh, term, in addition to the abortion case and certain others that tend to be uh, a higher profile or of higher political salience. The Second Amendment law, this is a blockbuster term, really. Uh, and that, I think, is because people are recognizing, uh, whatever your political persuasion, that uh, Washington is really powerful. And whether you're using it in the right way or the wrong way, based on you know your, your, your view of, of, of good public policy, this is a major agency, and how other agencies are structured is really, really important. Uh, here, the CFPB was designed to be very independent. Uh, uh, being independent of the president was a feature, and indeed, it's the most independent of independent agencies with the power to make uh, the rules, enforce them, adjudicate violations, and punish wrongdoers. And in addition, uh, its funding isn't even beholden to congressional appropriations. Instead, it makes a request from the Federal Reserve itself uh, an independent agency and, and gets its funding that way. So the removal provision or the presidential control over the single director is a very important flashpoint. It's kind of the the entree into the all of the rest of these uh, uh, constitutional, um, well, unique features uh, of this agency. So we get to these old cases because, of course, uh, even though I say that it is the most independent of independent agencies, it's not the only one that uh, is in this kind of fourth or fifth branch of government position. And so in 1926, Myers versus United States, Chief Justice William Taft uh, said that uh, the president has to have control over the removal of postmasters. That was considered to be a political plum, as came up in oral argument uh, uh, in the case, in, in the CFPB case yesterday. Uh, on the other hand, Humphrey's executor, a decade later, the Brandeis opinion, 1935, said that the Federal Trade Commission was 
okay. It was a multi-member commission, however, uh, with staggered terms, all of these things that uh, made sure it wasn't completely independent from the president, but at the same time, the president couldn't uh, appoint and remove at his prerogative because these were quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial officials. And courts ever since, in the 80 years since, have struggled to apply uh, this standard from Humphrey's executor, what makes a particular independent agency head, uh, whether it's multi-member or single-member, uh, a quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial. And so we've had debates over, for example, the Morrison v. Olson case, the special counsel where Justice Scalia was the lone dissent, which eventually carried the day. Congress didn't uh, uh, renew that particular statute. But the, this concern about having accountability uh, to the political branches, whether Congress or the president uh, 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 runs through this case. And so I think there's kind of a, a lack of guidance to the lower courts about these structural concerns. And that's why I've argued in my brief that Humphrey's executor either needs to be clarified to make sure that the president does have control over uh, executive officials, those uh, uh, exercising any executive power, uh, or be overturned to go back to kind of a, a Myers clarity uh, about uh, the executive controlling the executive branch. Thank you both for setting this up so well. Uh, by the end of the podcast, I want our listeners to understand the holding in Myers and the holding in Humphrey's executor and make up their own minds about what the Constitution compels. So, Richard, like Ilya, you were at the oral argument this week. Uh, tell us uh, broadly how the court seemed to be dividing on the substantive question of whether or not the removal mechanism was consistent with the Constitution. Several of the liberal justices said the only difference between this and Humphrey's executor is one head versus several, whereas the conservative justices, some of them seem to be sympathetic to the idea of narrowing or, or overturning Humphreys. So, so give us your sense of uh, how the court was breaking down on this fundamental constitutional question. Sure. And I'd like to start by going back to a couple of points that Ilya just made. Uh, he was commenting that he was surprised how high profile this case has seemed to him in terms of these kind of structural issues. I think a lot of that has to do with the actual mission of the Consumer Bureau. Uh, that mission is important to every American. Every one of us is a consumer. We all know that we get treated unfairly and cheated in the marketplace from time to time, and it gets frustrating when we feel there's nothing that can be done about it. And this agency's job is and was for the six years that I was the head of it uh, to prevent uh, that kind of abuse and to protect people in the marketplace. And I think there's a lot of concern about the future of this agency among the general public as they've seen some of the effectiveness of the work. But to get to your question very specifically, one interesting thing is, and, and Ilya said about Humphrey's executor, that it cut into the prerogative of the president to appoint and remove officials. It actually didn't cut into the president's prerogative to appoint officials. The president clearly can make the nominations and, and make the appointments, and that is specified in the Constitution. The issue of removal of officers, though, has always been harder a harder issue for the court because the Constitution says nothing about the removal of officials. And going back to just after the Civil War, when the, the radical Republicans in Congress of that day didn't trust the Johnson administration and were concerned about them dismissing cabinet members that had been appointed uh, under President Lincoln. Uh, they actually had passed the Tenure of Office Act 
making it such that the president could not remove those officials without the uh, acquiescence of the Senate. Uh, and that ultimately was a, a law that was repealed, but not until we'd first had a very political battle over impeachment uh, of, of Andrew Johnson, where he was acquitted by a single vote. In the uh, Humphreys executor and Myers line of cases, there's kind of a line that the court drew that cabinet type officials uh, of, of certain of certain uh, responsibilities report directly to the president and can be removed by the president at any time. Uh, in Humphrey's executor, what happened under the New Deal was that Congress had started, and they'd actually started long before that, with the Federal Reserve in the 19-teens, with the Interstate Commerce Commission back in the 1880s, creating these independent commissions with a little bit of independence from the president uh, to do regulatory matters. The Federal Reserve is a prominent example and was a big example that was being thrown around in the court uh, in the arguments this week because people are very concerned about compromising the independence of the Federal Reserve such that the president can just juice up interest rates before an election, uh, which they would be tempted to do to try to goose the economy. And that was an actual exchange that occurred in the courtroom uh, as a cautionary note to the justices. But in terms of removal of officers, it's not not at all clear in the Constitution. It says nothing. It's silent on the issue. Uh, and whether there can be uh, modest or more severe restrictions on the president's removal power for which kinds of officials, whether multi-member commissions in certain areas or even cabinet officials, that was a big hypothetical that was being pushed back uh, in terms of the constitutionality of the Bureau if you can insulate the director of the bureau from removal by the president? Could you even insulate cabinet officials going back to the Tenure of Office Act? And there was great discomfort about that, at least in the core functions of the president, such as war and foreign relations and the like. But those those were some of the tension points uh, in the case that the justices were probing and trying to understand where you can draw a line. Uh, and one of the lines they seem to be thinking about drawing, and it was very much urged on them by the Justice Department, is draw a line between an agency that is headed by a single official and an agency that's headed by a multi-member commission, because a multi-member commission is more deliberative and operates by consensus and can have other checks on it, whereas a single-member agency, as was the case when I was the director of the CFPB and is still, uh, potentially carries more concentrated power. I'm not sure that I think that that line ultimately holds, but it was very much being urged on the court and might become the basis of a decision in this case. Ilya, let's jump into the substantive question of why you believe that Humphrey's executor should be narrowed to apply only to purely non-executive officers. Uh, really, the, the case turns on whether or not the Myers decision was correct. And, and Myers involved a really dramatic debate between two of my heroes and two heroes of many listeners of We the People, uh, Chief Justice Taft and Louis Brandeis. So in Myers, uh, Brandeis questioned Taft's holding that there's an uncontrollable power of removal in the chief executive. In his dissenting opinion, Brandeis said the doctrine of the separation of powers was adopted by the convention of 1787 not to promote efficiency, but to preclude the exercise of arbitrary power. And that principle was adopted by a unanimous court in the Humphreys executor case. So tell us why you think that uh, Taft was right in Myers and, and the court was wrong in Humphreys. 
Well, the the idea is certainly isn't that our government structure is set up to pr- promote efficiency. We don't have a, a parliamentary uh, a government, say, where the executive is housed within the legislative and they're essentially uh, unified while the prime minister has the confidence of, of the House. Uh, here we have checks and balances. The different branches are supposed to check each other. But for that to work properly, uh, all of the institutions of government have to fit into one of those branches. That's why there's this talk in Humphreys of quasi-judicial or quasi-legislative and the reason that the there can be these independent uh, uh, officials who cannot uh, uh, are not subject to uh, removal uh, at will by the president is because they're exercising these uh, these quasi uh, uh, powers of the other branches. Um, the, the problem is if you're going to be creating you know even more modern type of structures uh, than than what was at issue with the the SEC and the FTC these alphabet agencies from uh, the New Deal era. Uh, if you're going beyond that, then you're getting beyond even the administrative state and into kind of the uh, a branch that's not accountable to anyone. And, and fundamentally, that was Congress's purpose. The thought uh, in 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 uh, Dodd Frank in creating the CFTC was that there needed to be something completely independent, as independent as the Federal Reserve is, without uh, political uh, control, really. And the problem is that that de- that that defies constitutional design, particularly when there's only one director. In effect, the director of the FTC of the CFTC is the president of uh, consumer financial uh, uh, policy, uh, and there's something wrong with that in a way for the reasons that that that, that Richard enumerated uh, are different than what happens with the FTC because with a multi-member agency there's there's rule by consensus, there's deliberation, there are staggered terms, so each president gets to appoint at least uh, a few of the members. Whereas here, and this came up uh, uh, repeatedly during oral argument yesterday, particularly Justice uh, Kavanaugh raised this, that uh, a president can be saddled with uh, a CFTC head, uh, sorry, CFPB head, I've been misstating it, but uh, the alphabet agencies run amok. But anyway, for his entire tenure, potentially, the, the head of the CFPB serves for five years. And if the president feels that in his duty to faithfully execute the laws, his constitutional duty, uh, that Chief Justice Taft hearkened on in Myers, if he, in doing that, he feels that he has to do things, enforce the law in a very different way than the CFPB's director wants, uh, well, we're at loggerheads. And in effect, uh, there's a constitutional crisis of sort, because if the CFPB is part of the executive branch, then the president is prevented from uh, faithfully executing the laws uh, as he sees them. That's, that, that's where uh, this problem comes in. And it's important that it was Justice Kavanaugh who was raising these concerns because when he was on the D.C. Circuit uh, in a case called PHH Corp. versus CFPB, uh, he wrote that, uh, talked about how the director of the CFPB is the single most powerful official in the entire United States government, uh, at least when measured in terms of unilateral uh, power over this particular issue. And he would have uh, well, he, we can get to the, the remedy of, of what you do with this problem, but he certainly saw a defect uh, in this structure and would have uh, uh, made it uh, uh, at will uh, removal rather than uh, for cause. And, and so he's certainly one of the leaders uh, on the court in, in, you know, he might be assigned to write the opinion for all we know of, of finding a, a problem with this structure. Richard, can you tell our listeners why you think that uh, Humphreys was correctly decided, that it shouldn't be narrowed, and why it comfortably leads to the upholding of the constitutionality of the CFPB? 
Yeah, and, and l- let me dig into the fundamentals a little more of separation of powers doctrine because there's there's different schools of thought and a lot turns on which school of thought you adhere to. Uh, for, first of all, I would just say generally about the uh, overheated claims about the power of the director of the CFPB, uh, those, are, those are really overstated uh, claims about how powerful that position was. I served in that position for six years. There was never any question that I was much less powerful than, say, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Attorney General, uh, even the Chair of the Federal Reserve exerted much more authority over uh, financial markets in the United States. And as Justice Sotomayor claimed at the oral argument, the head of the Social Security Administration, which is another single director agency, in some respects has more to do, more power, exerts more power over American uh, life than the director of the CFPB. But let's talk about the fundamentals of separation of powers. Some people see the separation of powers in the federal government as three hermetically sealed uh, branches and that they cannot trench upon one another. And so if we're talking about any kind of executive power or enforcement authority, that has to be entirely lodged with the president, has to be under the president's control and direction. All subsidiary officials in the executive branch have to be removable by the the president uh, at will. Uh, First of all, that doesn't even describe our current government by a long shot. Many, many executive branch officials are civil service. They cannot be removed uh, except for cause. Uh, They exert a lot of power in the aggregate, thousands and thousands of executive officials. That's not thought to trench upon the Constitution. The second thing I would say is a different version of the separation of powers is that it is a system of checks and balances in which the branches interact with one another inevitably and, and constantly. Uh, and the question is simply, do they trench too far on one another's authority? There's going to be push and pull. There has to be push and pull. If there's going to be checks and balances, they're going to run up against one another. And when you come to the removal power in particular, it is notable that in the Constitution, the constitutional framers gave the president specifically the appointment power. They described how it would be uh, exercised, and they gave it directly to the president. Uh, they even there introduced the, the Congress by giving the Senate the ability to advise and consent to nominations. But when it came to the removal power, which the framers could have described, and they could have also placed that exclusively in the president's authority, they said nothing. They were silent. So what does that mean? That means that Congress has some rights here and some authority. Congress has some ability to sketch out how the executive branch will work. Remember, and I think it was Professor Corbin who made this point 80 or 90 years ago, uh, if Congress so desired, they could limit the executive branch under the Constitution to a president, a vice president, and perhaps give each of them a desk and a lamp. All the rest of the executive branch is created by Congress in statutes that have created, say, the Treasury Department, the State Department, the, uh, the Department of War, now the Department of Defense. Uh, and in, in many cases in the 20th century, different independent executive agencies who exert uh, different forms of, of authority, including executive authority, and have never been thought to violate the Constitution. Why? Because this isn't solely a question of presidential prerogative and presidential authority. It's also a question of congressional authority. And if Congress can create the executive branch and, and describe who the officials will be and put some conditions on their tenure and describe what their powers are and what their responsibilities 
abilities are, it is not at all far-fetched, especially since the Constitution says nothing about giving the president exclusive removal power, that Congress can specify some aspects of removal as well. That's consistent with the separation of powers, and it actually furthers and is necessary to execute the checks and balances under our Constitution. Ilya, you've just heard several strong arguments about why this structure is constitutional, including the fact that lots of executive officials exercise this sort of mixed authority, and the framers gave the president appointment power but said nothing about removal, meaning that Congress has the power to limit the removal of the offices it creates. What is your response? Well, I think the removal power is uh, incident to the uh, appointment power, to again quote Chief Justice Taft from from Myers, or more recently Naomi Rao, now on the D.C. Circuit, had a law review article about six years ago about the removal power. Says the removal power, although the removal power may not provide the president with every form of control, it satisfies a constitutional minimum for the exercise of executive power. So certainly the president has all sort of appointees throughout the government uh, to uh, enforce the law and set policy. Uh, you know, in our large government now, one man cannot uh, or woman cannot do uh, the whole thing, uh, but there are certain uh, uh, checks and controls. And the CFPB is different than other uh, single director heads. Uh, the Social Security Administration, which, which uh, uh, Rich talked about, has no enforcement powers. I mean, very important administratively. Social Security, the, the program obviously is very important, uh, but it doesn't uh, create rules and then issue investigative demands and then eventually finds people guilty of violations and, and, and punishes them, which is what the CFPB does. And that's very important because once you start um, uh, uh, throwing in or, or, or putting people's uh, uh, rights or freedoms or, or property in jeopardy, uh, that at, at that point that you need political controls or you're, you're going to have due process violations at, uh, at a certain point. Uh, and that's why ultimately this is, you know, Rich keeps talking about the why there's so much attention. It's because of the importance of consumer finance and we're all consumers. And, you know, that might be a, a, a view uh, on the progressive left, it might be a view inside the beltway. Uh, you know, I don't know how much people uh, outside, outside, uh, you know, the, the elite media or lawyers really uh, talk about the CFPB. Uh, but you know, generally, there's a there's a concern about uh, agencies uh, that that you know are not accountable to the people or not accountable to the political branches. Um, and you know, whether it's you have a drain the swamp kind of uh, attitude supporting President Trump or. Uh, kind of more conventional constitutional conservative uh, 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 concerns about uh, uh, Congress uh, delegating powers that it can't or creating institutions that are separate from our um, the original structures uh, of the Constitution as, as we uh, understand them. I, th I think these are these are various serious concerns, particularly when com Congress effectively gave the CFPB and this sole director carte blanche to write the rules about how to enforce these various. I think it's 19 consumer. Uh, protection laws um, that, that, that can be changed uh, 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 day to day. And, and that's ultimately what's at stake here. And I think we saw at the, at the oral argument, there's at least a majority that, that, that sees at least five votes that sees a problem with this kind of structure, that sees removal in a, in a, as an important check, particularly when you have uh, a single director. Still plenty independent, uh, but at the end of the day, if the CFPB head is at loggerheads with the president about uh, the policies that are being pursued, you know, uh, we, we have to be able to, you know, the people have elected the president to enforce policies to, to, to be the executive, to, to, to have the executive power. And, you know, just because there's one drop of 
quote-unquote quasi-legislative or quasi-judicial power, you know, that makes these independence of these agencies perhaps even more dangerous because they become a government unto themselves for at least those particular statutes that they're meant to be uh, enforcing. Richard, Ilya just suggested that there may be five justices who believe that the Humphreys executor case was wrong to approve this independence of quasi-legislative, uh, quasi-judicial agencies. He made an originalist argument, which he also makes in his brief, that proposals to have multiple executives or a council of advisors with separate authority were rejected by the federal convention. So maybe respond explicitly to Ilya's claim that uh, there may be five originalist justices who are ready to claim that this independent structure violates the original understanding of the separation of powers. And then give us a sense of how important independence was to you. If you could have been fired more easily, would that have made you less effective? So again, I don't think that there will be five justices for that uh, very strong uh, unitary executive, pretty extreme view of how Congress and the president should interact in this area. I think there could be anywhere from one to three justices who will write such an opinion, and I think there will be multiple opinions in the case. It'll be a fractured court. But I'd like to go back uh, just a moment. Th these overheated claims that the director, the Consumer Bureau, or these independent agencies can do anything they want and are uncontrolled is just to blink away reality. In fact, uh, the agencies are always subject to Congress. If Congress doesn't like what they're doing, it can overturn their regulations, as has been done from time to time. It can legislate anew. It can, it can change the statutes. It can overrule what the agencies do at any time. They only exercise delegated power, and ultimately that power resides with the Congress. Second, anything they do is subject to challenge in the courts. The fact that this case is in front of the United States Supreme Court is a reaffirmation that the Bureau is not uncontrolled. Everything it does has to comply with due process, and any kind of challenge can be levied to its actions. Uh, and courts review agencies all the time, and they overturn their actions all the time when they think they've got things wrong. So again, this is a, a practical mechanism of checks and balances where the branches are dealing with one another. And this agency is subject to court oversight, it's subject to congressional oversight, and it is subject to presidential oversight uh, in terms of uh, pressure, in terms of what it should be doing, in terms of other policies set by the administration, and in terms of new appointments that will arise from time to time. Uh, and so there is there's a great deal of interaction among the branches in the federal government that was designed by the framers. Simply because you call something enforcement power, executive power, doesn't mean that Congress has no say over it or that the courts have no say over it. They both do. Uh, and again, to distinguish the Social Security Administration, because it involves administration of the law rather than enforcement of the law, is a false premise because administration of the law is a core executive function as well. The Constitution does not refer to enforcement. It refers to taking care that the laws be faithfully executed, and that includes administration of the law, uh, and all these agencies are engaged uh, in that in part. Uh, but uh, I do not think that uh, a workable, practical notion of the Constitution would lead to overturning Humphrey's executor. Uh, it is a modest removal provision. Uh, it still leaves the removal power with the president, but just conditions it somewhat. Just as the Civil Service Act 
conditions the removal of many other officials in the federal government uh, that the president can't just just fire willy-nilly without being subject to the courts reviewing that and potentially overturning it. Uh, and so uh, I think that uh, the notion that we should tear up these independent administrative agencies, which have been functioning for over 100 years, which Congress believes is an is a effective structure for helping to administer some of these laws, which again leaves the, removal leaves the appointment power with the president uh, and leaves the removal power with the president subject to conditions is not an extreme view at all. And it's one that the courts have consistently upheld, not only in Humphrey's executor, but in cases like Wiener, in Morrison versus Olson, which was almost a unanimous court, only Justice Scalia dissenting and Chief Justice Rank was writing the opinion in that case in which he opined that modest restrictions on the removal power that left the removal authority with the president but subjected it to certain conditions did not violate the Constitution. That's been the law of the land very clearly for the last 30 years uh, and I think should be upheld in this case. Your brief uh, cites Justice Scalia's uh, lone dissenting opinion in Morrison v. Olson and suggests that the law that has developed uh, since Humphrey's executor is not workable. Uh, can you respond to uh, Richard's argument that overturning Humphreys would not be workable and practical? Uh, why do you think it would be? And if you were writing the opinion, just give our We the People listeners a sense of what it would look like on constitutional grounds and why you would uh, limit Humphreys to apply to uh, purely non-executive officials. Well, sure. First, to clarify, uh, I don't think there are five votes to, uh, unfortunately, for supporting my brief's position or kind of the, the maximalist position to uh, to either overturn uh, Humphrey's executor or even throw out the uh, the CFPB uh, altogether in terms of the so-called severability, whether you can sever the removal provision uh, from the rest of it. I, I agree with Rich on, on that point, that there are going to be uh, one to three votes uh, for that kind of uh, position. I think uh, Justice Gorsuch is probably there. Justice Thomas might join him, uh, but you know Justice Kavanaugh is already on the record, uh, as I as I mentioned earlier in in a, in a different CFPB case when he was on the D.C. Uh, circuit, that you can sever that provision and simply make uh, 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 transform the the four cause removal into at will removal, and then you're okay. Which is uh, similar to what the court did in a case ten years ago called Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which was uh, created by the uh, predecessor uh, uh, statute uh, over financial regulation to Dodd-Frank, and that's the Sarbanes-Oxley Act under uh, under President Bush. Um, uh, there, there was a double for-cause provision. That is, the president can only remove uh, SEC, Securities and Exchange Commissioners, for-cause, and then they could only remove uh, members of this uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, Peekaboo, it's cutely called, uh, for cause as well. And the uh, the, the court there uh, got rid of that dual for cause uh, provision in a in a five to four decision. I think we'll, we're likely to see five votes to have a redux of, of that, that you get rid of the for cause uh, and then allow it to, to go along. Although, who knows? Severability doctrine might be in a flux. Justice Thomas, in a case called uh, Murphy versus NCAA about uh, uh, sports, federal prohibition on sports games, or rather prohibiting states from, from legalizing it, said that the, the you know, it's just one uh, opinion, but, but he said that rather than trying to get into the minds of Congress,
Congress and, and figure out uh, what its purpose was or what it would have been satisfied with, what kind of compromise it would have uh, uh, made in the absence of a particular provision, we really should uh, uh, be more modest and, and you know, not uh, try to prognosticate in, in, in that way. But anyway, the maximalist position uh, is simply that uh, you have boards that uh, perhaps have staggered provisions. And so you don't have, if you have a five-person board like the, uh, the FTC or the SEC, what have you, um, you know, every two years or whatever, the, however you stagger the, the, the terms, uh, that uh, makes sense. And so it would have independence because the president doesn't simply appoint uh, a full new slate, a, a con- wholly controlled board uh, as soon as, as he takes office. And you have certain checks that way. Uh, but just to have something completely independent of all political accountability Whereas in the CFPB's case, even the budget uh, is not dependent on congressional appropriations. And sure, Congress could at any time repeal uh, the CFPB alone or all of Dodd-Frank for that matter. Uh, but that uh, particularly in this day and age with the practicalities of, of, of passing significant legislation is, is an unlikely and kind of ephemeral check uh, rather than a real one of the kind that, are, uh, that is built into our constitutional structures. And so just tweaking the removal uh, is uh, the, the very least uh, that could be done. But really, uh, this should be sent back to the drawing board because as came uh, out in oral argument yesterday, Canon Shambagam arguing for sale of law, the, the consumer uh, uh, affairs law firm that, that brought this challenge, um, we have no idea what Congress would have done in the absence of having this for-cause removal provision. For that matter, there's evidence that Congress would have uh, done something else or maybe not passed any law at all. So significant was this idea that uh, this agency would be independent or the single director would be independent of presidential control. Richard, uh, do you share Ilya's suggestion that the court may sever the for-cause provision and otherwise allow the structure of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau to stand. And if the court does that, um, how big a deal would that be, both for the operations of the CFPB and for other quasi-independent agencies? Yeah, and for the uh, listeners of, of your podcast who are not necessarily legal eagles, although I know many of them are, when we talk about severability, which is kind of a technical legal term, what we're really talking about is if the court were to hold that some aspect of the CFPB is unconstitutional in this case, what would be the consequences? What would be the effects of that decision? One possible effect would be to say that because the Bureau is infected with some amount of unconstitutionality, the entire Bureau needs to be invalidated and wiped out of existence. That would be the maximalist position on severability. I think it is highly unlikely and would be quite wrong for the court to hold that here for several reasons. Uh, first of all, the issue of, of what effect con- unconstitutionality should have on a statute uh, is supposed to be limited by the court to the narrowest possible reading uh, that is that is permissible in the case. And secondly, if Congress itself speaks to what the effect should be, then the court is not supposed, another separation of powers issue, the court is not supposed to rewrite the statute itself or come up with its own decision on that. It's supposed to defer to Congress. And in this statute that created the CFPB, Congress said very specifically, if any part of this statute were ever to be found unconstitutional, we want to make it very clear that we want the rest of the statute as much as possible to remain in place. 
Why is that? Because Congress was dealing with a practical problem. They weren't dealing with a bunch of technical legal issues. They were dealing with a practical problem that the economy had melted down in 2008. Many millions of people lost their homes. Millions of people lost their jobs. All of us lost substantial retirement savings. And they wanted to put safeguards in place to see that that never happened again. One of those was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. There are many others in that statute. And I think if the question is, would the court, if it finds the director's for-cause removal provision unconstitutional, would the, would the court think that Congress would prefer to have them sever that provision and make the director removable at will, but otherwise leave the bureau in place to do its important work of protecting consumers in the financial marketplace? Or would it take that one change and cause it to strike down 138 pages of statutory text that reorganized the government to strengthen consumer financial protection, something that's very important to middle-class Americans who get hurt in the marketplace all the time. And I think there's no question that the court should both defer to what Congress said explicitly and also recognize that Congress was trying to solve a practical problem here and this constitutional issue should be decided in the narrowest possible uh, way. Thank you so much for that. And Ilya, the last word is to you. Please tell our great We the People listeners why you believe that the restriction on the president's power to fire the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, except for cause, violates the Constitution and why the court should overturn it. Well, I'm not going to repeat all the things that I've already said, but fundamentally, uh, our Constitution sets up three branches and Congress does not have the pro- power to create a fourth that's... that's uh, uh, independent of of other uh, political actors, this is this is part of a of a long term trend where Congress doesn't uh, really complete its work uh, and and passes the political buck to uh, uh, faceless agencies uh, and ultimately to a judiciary that has to evaluate if what these agencies come up with is within spitting distance of what the constitutional uh, allows. So what's supposed to be the most democratically accountable branch has been punting its duties and avoiding hard choices since long before the the current polarization. And so people get frustrated um, that uh, whoever they put in power in Washington, the situation doesn't change. And I think you see that uh, both from uh, Bernie Sanders supporters on the left and uh, Donald Trump supporters, particularly those who supported them in the 2016 uh, primaries, uh, that that you have this perpetual motion machine uh, in Washington that's not responsive and the, the courts become the only actors with an ability to throw in a monkey wrench from time to time, which is why you see people uh, protesting more in front of the Supreme Court than in front of Congress, which is a bizarre situation when you come to think of it. So uh, the less that we have these so-called uh, in- independent uh, uh, agencies, uh, and independent just means uh, you know a, a bureaucracy, a, a a civil service, an administration that uh, is not accountable uh, politically, that uh, it's a rule by, by experts that doesn't fit in neatly into the checks and balances and the separation of powers that were originally uh, uh, set up. It's a very Wilsonian uh, perspective on government administration, uh, Woodrow Wilson, that, that we, you know, these, uh, these checks and balances are outmoded and we have kind of, uh, we, we need, we know what we need to do, we just put the experts in charge, uh, insulate them from political control, uh, 
uh, and away they go. This, this removal power issue is just one very small aspect of that, but it's an important one because the potential check for a president to remove uh, an official who is not enforcing policies, who's not uh, uh, executing the law in, in a faithful way that, that he considers his constitutional duty to be, uh, that's, uh, that's, that, that can be an important check uh, in one small way in which we can uh, push back and, and, and get back to uh, the, the, the structure that the, that the framers envisioned. Thank you so much, Richard Cordray and Ilya Shapiro, for a stimulating, thorough, and illuminating discussion of the Constitution and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Richard, Ilya, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Ann Corbett and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week? Of course, it's Richard Cordray's new book, Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy, and Our Democracy, as well as Ilya Shapiro's brief in the CFPB case uh, filed for the Cato Institute and other groups. And if you want extra credit and want to sort out in your own minds who's right on the Constitution, please read Chief Justice Taft's opinion in the Myers case and the court's unanimous opinion in the Humphreys executor case. And also, please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry to know about the future of the constitutionality of the administrative state and who isn't, after all. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, and the devotion for lifelong learning and for cultivating your faculties of reason that all of you display by listening every week to We the People and learning and growing. So you can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.